0: Hello and welcome to Premier League Press Box, the podcast that goes to Premier League games and talks to the people who cover matches. Going behind the scenes to tell you stories you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Ian Beach... And I'm Nigel Bidmead, and this week is a special edition.
1: We're going to celebrate the life and achievements of Burnley's greatest ever player, one of the most sublime footballers of his generation, a man who sidestepped fame and fortune, but nevertheless won the league title in England and played in the quarterfinals of both the European Cup and the World Cup. Jimmy McElroy was born in Lambeg in Northern Ireland in October
2: 1931. I hardly ever kicked a football it was usually a tennis ball. We played on on um, soil, uh, baked soil, uh, and, w- w- and f- most of my football in those days was with a tennis ball. And, and I sometimes wonder: did that help me to develop feel and touch? Because of a tiny ball, you've got to, you know, you've got to be treated gently to, to be able to control it, you know.
0: We have to thank the Burnley Express for allowing us to use clips of Jimmy McElroy. And we'll tell you more about the Burnley Express and the part the newspaper played in his life later.
1: So he was growing up in wartime. During the 1940s, there was rationing and shortages and he was from a large family. They were humble beginnings, but Jimmy McElroy was an outstanding young footballer and he was offered the chance to move to Belfast to play for Glen Torrent where he met up with Danny Blanchflower, who was to become a great friend and influence. McElroy was 17
0: at the time. The big clubs in England had scouts in Northern Ireland. The same year McElroy joined Glentoran, Danny Blanchflower moved to Aston Villa. And a year later, McElroy also moved to England, joining Burnley at the age of 19. At that time, there was a steady supply of
1: players moving from Northern Ireland to England. Danny Blanchflower's younger brother, Jackie, moved to Manchester United. Billy Bingham signed for Sunderland. Peter McParland joined Aston Villa. And Harry Gregg went to Doncaster Rovers before going on to become one of Manchester
0: United's greatest ever goalkeepers. That was the core of what would become a really strong Northern Ireland team. And in May 1957, Jimmy was involved in an unusually creative moment with Danny Blanchflower during a World Cup qualifier against Portugal at Windsor Park. They tried the two-touch penalty, a bit like Thierry Henry and Robert Pires.
1: Danny and Jimmy McElroy with a penalty kick. The referee didn't know what to do.
2: The crowd didn't know what had happened. It had never been seen before. If it didn't go in, though, what we have said? Silly buggers. (laughs)
0: Peter McParland, Harry Gregg and Billy Bingham there all talking in the film Spirit of 58. Thanks to Evan Marshall and Clackity Films for that clip, you can hear the camaraderie among the players. Evan has also written a book called Spirit of 58. And that was the first time the two-touch penalty had ever been caught on film. Unfortunately, the confused referee disallowed the goal on the night. The Northern Ireland manager at the time was Peter Doherty, who had apparently been involved in another two-touch penalty with his Derby County teammate Rach Carter 12 years beforehand. It's possible Doherty and Carter had performed their trick in an exhibition match. It took nerve for Jimmy and Danny Blanchflower to do it at international level. Northern Ireland were close to qualifying
1: for the World Cup, but they needed to beat Italy in their last game. They turned up to face them in Belfast in December 1957, but the Hungarian referee was stranded by bad weather. A local ref took charge of the match, which was declared a friendly, but it was anything but. It became known as the Battle of Belfast and ended in a bad-tempered two-all draw. Italy returned in the new year, the bitterness forgotten, and McElroy scored as Northern Ireland won 2-1 to earn a place at the World Cup in Sweden that summer. But fate played its joker. Three weeks after qualification came the Munich Air disaster. Harry Gregg was heroic and physically at least was lucky. Not so Danny's younger brother, Jackie, whose injuries meant he never played again. In June of
0: that year, Northern Ireland began their first ever World Cup campaign.
2: Uh, Racing the quarterfinals of the World Cup, and that, w- that was in Sweden, and um, you know when I look back, I I just think mm. did it really happen? Uh, because it's Northern Ireland's just it's just a dot on on, on the on the world map, mm. but um, it was no, we were fortunate to have a, a, a number of good players really good players at that at that time.
1: Northern Ireland were undone by France in the quarterfinals with Fontaine scoring twice in a 4-0 win. It had been a rollercoaster six months with the national team but now Jimmy's focus was on club football with Burnley and their burgeoning reputation.
0: Wolves were the dominant team in the late 1950s. They were aiming for a hat-trick of league titles in 1960 and at Tottenham, Bill Nicholson was developing a modern style of play. However, Burnley pipped them both. It came down to the last game of the season, Burnley against the Manchester City side at Main Road that included Burt Troutman and Dennis Law. Jimmy wasn't fully fit, all the goals were scored in the first half hour and Burnley had to hold on to claim a 2-1 win, clinching the championship by one point ahead of Wolves, whose manager Stan Cullis was in the stands because they'd already played their final league fixture. It was the highlight
1: of Jimmy's Burnley career. He also played in the FA Cup final a couple of years later, where they lost to Tottenham. Jimmy went on to play for Stoke alongside Stanley Matthews and Oldham. He was also an assistant manager to Nat Lofthouse at Bolton, but his heart belonged to Burnley.
2: I think I've been lucky to have to ever come to Burnley in the first place, and um, I've never, I've never wanted to leave it. You know. Well, I've had. Thirteen great years at Turf Moor, uh, and then when I finished playing, somehow um, the fans still treated me as if I was still a still a Burnley player. And, and uh, um, like I say, that the size of the town is uh, was just right, and and I still find it just right.
0: I was at Fulham on Sunday for their game against Burnley, and the away fans were singing Jimmy's name during the match. I spoke to some of the supporters who saw him play, they loved him, and one supporter told me that Jimmy was the greatest player he has ever seen. That was Jimmy McElroy, the footballer. What about Jimmy McElroy, the man? I've been speaking to someone who knew him really well, the broadcast and commentator, Jackie Fullerton.
3: Well, I was glad to say I met Jimmy a number of times uh, over the years because I admired him so much, not only as a wonderful man, but as a, a a footballer of, of real quality, and I used to do uh, anniversaries of the 1958 Northern Ireland World Cup squad who got to the quarterfinals in Sweden. It was a marvellous time for Northern Ireland. Aside, not only had we McElroy in his pump, but we had uh, the legendary Danny Blansflower, who captained the Spurs team to the League and Cup double in the early 60s, and those two had a wonderful partnership. And, and they were a cut above uh, the rest in that team, with all due respect. And we had some good players. We had Harry Gregg, who was in goals in the 58 World Cup final only months after the Munich disaster, where he'd been a, a hero. And uh, he was voted the best goalkeeper in the world at that uh, tournament. And uh, we also had uh, Sunderland winger Billy Bingham. We had Aston Villa winger Peter McParland, who got five of our six goals out there. And. Uh, the late Bertie Peacock, who was a midfielder with Celtic, so we had a good side. But uh, Jimmy was wonderful company. He was a, a good-looking boy, and he was—he always looked like a, an aristocrat. He was always uh, prim <laughs> and proper, well dressed, well groomed, and that's what he was like as a footballer. He was always pristine and a wonderful player. Uh, he was elegant. He had silky touches. He was lovely to watch and. He was an inside forward. Uh, nowadays, that's a midfielder, oozing class. Uh, a little fin here, a shimmy there, a drop of the shoulders. He was the real deal. And uh, the way I would put it is for the modern-day football fan, Jimmy, uh, I think he can be compared to David Silva of Manchester City. That's how good he was, adept at finding space. Uh, he always had time, and his vision and passing, well... Uh, those abilities were just second to none.
0: He was obviously a, a creative player. He was known as the brain of Burnley, wasn't he? So that was obviously the, the part he played in the in both the Burnley team and the Northern Ireland team.
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, it was a joy to see him at Northern Ireland level with uh, Blanche Flower. And I think uh, Jimmy was revered in England as well. I think had he been English, he would have got many more headlines from the English press. But whilst Danny was this verbose uh, talkative character, a philosopher about the game, Jimmy preferred the shadows. He was uh, a a, a quiet man. He he knew, I'm sure, how good he was, but he he was humble with it, and that was one of his uh, endearing qualities. But uh, he could certainly... I, I get tired with people asking me, Could the like of George Best or Danny Blanchflower, or Jimmy McElroy, could they play in today's game? And I always feel like saying, are you stupid? Of of course they can. People of that quality and that class could play in uh, any era. And the lovely thing was they spent 12 years at Burnley and they idolized him there. I mean, he played some 500 games, I think, for the Clarence. And he was recently named their greatest ever player. So that uh, tells you a lot about him. And that was an incredible accolade for the quiet man, a lovely guy, uh, so modest, who'd cost the club just, wait for this, £7,000 in 1950. Yeah, £7,000. They bought him from one of our top Irish League sides, Glenn Torren. And he certainly repaid that fee, if we can call it that, in modern-day parlance, when he played a major role as when Burnley won the old first division title in 1960. And there's a lovely story. He he was still living in Burnley uh, when he passed away just recently. And there's a lovely story that in 1962, I think it was, that he had this offer from the Italian club Sampdoria. And they offered him a a villa overlooking the Mediterranean. They offered him an international school for his son and his daughter, and money-wise, they offered him wages way above what he was earning at Burnley. So, obviously, Jimmy had been a good Northern Ireland man thinking about money. He was tempted, obviously, and he could have played in Italy, no doubt about that. But uh, when he mentioned it to his wife, uh, she said, Jimmy, why would we ever want to leave Burnley? And Jimmy <laughs> certainly had to agree because along with his wife, his late wife, uh, he, uh, he loved uh, Burnley as well. And the nice thing was that Burnley uh, loved him in return, and uh, they named a grandstand after him. And uh, another lovely touch I thought which showed his affinity and affection for the club was in 2011 he was awarded an MBE, uh, quite rightly so, and he didn't go, as usual, to Buckingham Palace to receive it from the Queen. He uh, had it presented to him at uh, Turf Moor, his beloved Turf Moor. So I think that uh, speaks volumes for uh, Jimmy and uh, Burnley as a partnership, a life partnership.
0: I heard that he didn't like sitting in the Jimmy McElroy stand at Turf Moor. Actually, he said he preferred to watch matches from behind the goal because he could see how the pattern of the, the play would develop. So... Obviously, even in his retirement, he was still interested in watching the game. I know that he um, went on to become a journalist. He worked for the the Burnley Express. He covered football and cricket for That's them. Right. And he he painted as well. Apparently, in his retirement, was he a, a creative man? Was that the kind of man you knew? Somebody who who was interested in things like that.
3: Uh, Well, you've got me there. I didn't know anything about the painting, but uh, he was very measured when you met him. He didn't uh, tolerate fools. I mean, you had to ask him the right question and so on. But he was the nicest of men, and he was world-class company. He was humorous. uh, But his creativity came on a football pitch. And uh, as I say, I'm going to compare him to David Silva. And I was with a group of... uh, Uh, men this morning, uh, a men's uh, club that we go to, and I was saying I was speaking, I was going to speak about uh, Jimmy McElroy, and one of the guys, without prompting, said, he says, I would compare him to David Silva, and I said, funny you should say that, because that's the name I have done. So they were all saying, oh, Jimmy McElroy, class, and all that. So Jimmy was a creative player. And I think, I know he spent three years at Stoke City after falling out with Bob Lord about money, because when they abolished the £20 a week maximum wage back then in the 60s, uh, Johnny Haynes of the former England captain played at Fulham. Uh, he was the first player to get £100 a week, which was massive money then. And uh, Jimmy McElroy very quickly followed him, but uh, there was a fallout and uh, the... The Burnley players at that time, including the great captain, Jimmy Adamson, uh, they were distraught because McElroy was part of the fabric, and he went to Stoke City where he played with uh, Sir Stanley Matthews. and uh, He then went into management, but uh, I don't think Jimmy would have been cut out for management because I, I think Jimmy would be one of those people who uh, would think, well, they should play as well as I played. And not many people could play the way Jimmy played. So he he set the bar too high, I would think, for the, the players in his charge. So uh, that's why he never made it into management. I believe he, he worked as a bricklayer of all things, this great player. Uh, no chance then of securing your future in the game with big, big money as they do today. He worked as a bricklayer, and then he went to the Burnley Express. And he was obviously a creative in a writing sense as well. But uh, he was uh, sharp, sharp as a knife on, on a football pitch. And he obviously had a very sharp and creative mind as well. Great fella.
0: When you talk about the fact he was offered a chance to go to Italy, that really puts him on the level with players like Jimmy Greaves, Dennis Law, John Charles, players who also were offered that opportunity. So, that really that says a lot about the kind of player he was, somebody who really caught the eye. And in Italy at the time, where the game would have been a very defensive kind of football, they were looking for players, attacking players, to come in and perhaps unlock defences and pr- provide an attacking well, creative spark.
3: That's right. Well, he, he would be up there in that uh, bracket with the Dennis Laws and the Jimmy Greaves. Uh, Jimmy Greaves is a wonderful goal poacher. Uh, John Charles, that mountain of a man, for Wales and Leeds United and so on. Jimmy was up there because Jimmy was, he was the real deal. He he could do everything. He could, he he could, he was adept at finding space. He always seemed to have time, which is very precious in a football pitch. You don't often get time. And he could uh, feint. he could drop a shoulder, a little shimmy here, a little shimmy there. And he was past people. And his passing and vision uh, were just out of the top drawer. He was second to none uh, in those departments. He, he could see the bigger picture, and that's why he and Blanche Flair blended so well and why Northern Ireland did so well at the 1958 uh, World Cup Finals because those two were masterminding and making things happen in that midfield area. He was, uh, uh, I think, a lot of your older listeners will realise just how good uh, McElroy
0: was and one final thought then it sounds like he was the kind of man who really fitted into the town of Burnley it became his adoptive home and he obviously lived there after his retirement there were no airs or graces uh, the sort of man who'd have a smile a friendly word for people in the street I've spoken to people who live in Burnley and they would see him walking around the town so he, he just fitted in and enjoyed living there
3: well, it's part. He, he was a Northern Ireland lad, and he never forgot that, and I always appreciated that when I met him, that he he wasn't this big star uh, looking down on the rest of us. He was just a Northern Ireland lad, and part of our trade over here is to be a warm people, and there's always a great welcome in the mat for you and all that, and a bit, a bit of crack, and a, we're always smiling, and uh, Jimmy was one of those types. He never forgot himself. And uh, I think I will remember him mainly as a great, great player. But uh, better than that, I will remember him as a a great human being. And I just hope he rests in peace because someone like Jimmy McElroy, MBE, would certainly deserve that.
0: Jackie Fullerton there, remembering Jimmy McElroy, who died on the 20th of August at the age of 86.